I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. My first gay experience was with Billy Crystal. Okay, (laughs) I should probably rephrase that. The first time I became aware of gay people was seeing Billy Crystal on TV, in the show Soap. Come on, Jody. It's Ralph, isn't it? It's not Ralph. Fine, hey, you want to be with Ralph, be with Ralph. I mean, the man has the IQ of an avocado and the worst nose job that I've ever seen. My parents let us watch all of those edgy 1970s comedies, you know, like All in the Family and Sanford and Son. So watching Billy's character Jody sashay all over the small screen was not that unusual for us, despite the fact the character was kind of making history. I didn't know why I liked Jody so much, I just did. I also knew to keep that to myself. My folks didn't use slurs or anything like that, but they did say he had sugar in his tank. And I knew from hearing that phrase and other occasions that that wasn't a good thing. If we had Jodies in my family, they weren't known to me. If we had any Jodies in my neighborhood, they kept that information to themselves. I guess they had to. That's the thing about life in the closet, right? Not only does it impact the person in the closet, it prevents others from seeing themselves reflected in society. You start believing you're the only one or that there must be something wrong with you. It would be like 20 years after Soap debuted in 1977 that I finally started to believe that there was nothing wrong with me. In between that time, I attempted suicide. I tried gay conversion therapy. I gave my life to Christ and I married a woman and then I got divorced and contemplated suicide again. I even went so far as to bully other queer kids in school so that no one would suspect my secret. By the way, Terrence, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry. You were so beautiful and brave in high school. You didn't deserve any of that bullying, especially from me. And if I'm being honest, I had a massive crush on you. And maybe if I were as brave as you, things would have turned out differently for both of us in high school. More importantly, things may have been different for the other queer kids in school who just needed to know that there was nothing wrong with them. That you didn't have to keep quiet that you were gay or lesbian or bi or trans because there was nothing to hide. The Trevor Project National Survey revealed that 40% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered suicide in 2019, a statistic that rips my heart out every single time I read it. One of my favorite country artists, Brad Paisley, has a song called Letter to Me. And send it back in time to myself at 17. It's a touching ballad in which Brad sings about writing a letter to his 17-year-old self, letting his younger self know that it's going to be okay, that he is going to be okay. Life Out Loud with L.G. Granderson is a letter to the queer kid who thinks she is alone. It's for that kid's parent who wonders what kind of life their baby can have if they come out. It's for the activists and the pioneers who feel forgotten. And it's for the bigots who have tried to silence us. And yo, just as a heads up, it didn't work. We're still here. We're still queer. And to be quite honest with you, I don't care if you're over it because we're over you. We won't be silenced or ignored. We won't keep it to ourselves. We have every right to exist. We have every right to be happy. We have every single right to live our lives out loud. That's why I'm so happy that the first episode of Life Out Loud is with Stephen Canals, the co-creator of the hit TV show Pose. The category is Bring It Like Royalty. 
Pose is an FX drama following the lives of queer people of color during the 1980s and 90s in New York City. Rooted in ball culture, there really isn't a subject matter that Pose doesn't explore. The AIDS crisis, the down low, racism, finding love. Steven and I met last year during an Emmys panel discussion and stayed in touch. He is not only hilarious and thoughtful and handsome, but Steven is fearless, man. I just love the way he brings his entire self into mixed spaces. He's black, he's Puerto Rican, he's queer, and it all shows up in conversations with him and in the show Pose, which he developed along with Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. I've told Steven many times just how wonderful it was to see these remarkable characters of Pose on television and how I hoped it would help the general population see trans women of color as complete human beings. Not just as the comic relief or a policy issue, but as a human being. I also told Steven that Little Poppy was fine as hell, but I digress. 166 meetings before someone said yes to Pose. I get the feeling you won't need that many meetings before you get a yes now. I sure hope not. <laughs> if so, that means something has dastardly gone wrong because it's your your first shot at, at show running, in my opinion, has been groundbreaking and brilliant. Um, we start every podcast, every conversation with this question. And since you are our very first guest of the very first episode of the very first season of Life Out Loud with Elsie Granderson, you get to be the first person to answer this question. So I'm really excited. And the question is, when did you remember something other than straight? When did that happen for you? Who was your first gay, if you will? That is a fantastic question. Wow. Oh my goodness. You know, I don't know that I know who my first gay is. I can tell you for sure, I remember the moment when I knew that I was, when I knew I was different. Mm -hmm. And that was, I was eight years old and I was flipping through TV Guide and um, I came across an ad in TV Guide for the show, My Two Dads. And there was an image of the actor Chad Allen. And I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, he's really pretty. And immediately the next thought was, ooh, you're not supposed to think that. That's not okay. Mm. Did someone tell you that or did you feel that instinctively? It's fascinating. When I think about my experiences now as a kid, it's it must have been me internalizing even at that young age people always asking you as a little boy, do you have a girlfriend? You know, when I assess my my childhood, like there were no out gay people in my family. And and I was so young. I mean, I was only eight years old. So it's not like I had an understanding of what gay is or had seen any shows or any content where uh, couples that weren't male and female was normalized. So I think in my eight-year-old brain, I must have just known, wait, it's not okay for me as a boy to be attracted to another boy because the only thing that we ever see out in the world is boy and girl. Right. You know, it's, it's funny that for you as Chet Allen, Michael Evans from Good Times made me gay. 
<laughs> Mama, they don't know it, but that IQ exam was nothing but a white racist test. Oh, Michael, how could it be a white racist test? All school children take it of all colors. Yeah, but this one was given by the white people, made up by white people, and even graded by white people. It don't tell you how smart you are, just how white you are. He wore the same tired brown pair of corduroys every episode, and I loved him for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So good. How much of Pose is that eight-year-old boy? Ooh. You know, honestly, Pose is absolutely for eight-year-old Steven, you know, Pose is for, is for LZ, you know, Pose is for every young queer and trans person of a certain age who grew up not seeing themselves represented in film and in television. Hmm. And hopefully the enduring legacy of the show is that it will continue to be a safe space will continue to be a solve will continue to be um a resource for all of the future steven and lz's of the world who in moments when they need to feel centered and grounded and loved and supported will be able to turn to and see themselves it's a wonderful legacy steven it, it, it truly is I, I remember what happened to me as an adult when I learned about Bayard Rustin. Mm. The executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation. What do you say? It totally transformed the way that I viewed myself, my world, my place, my communities as a black man, as well as a, you know, as a gay man, um, as well as a father. And so I'm excited for that eight-year-old Steven and that eight-year-old LZ to see Pose if it's going to do for those children what learning about Bayard Rustin later in life did for me. I want to say... It's so important what you are saying about what Baird Rustin means to you in your life because I think we do not spend enough time talking about or centering our queer and trans elders. Mm. And I think, you know, such a large part of what I wanted, what I hoped to accomplish through Pose was honoring the fact that you and I, like, we lost an entire generation, right? So I'm in a place now in my 40s where I look back and I think, like, where are all of our queer and trans elders? Like, where are those people who are in their, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s? It's like we lost. We lost nearly an entire generation to HIV AIDS. And so now we all are forging ahead, Um without that guidance and without that support. And so it's so important that we look back and we reflect on those moments. And it's so critically important that we take a moment to, to say, thank you for the work. We wouldn't be where we are if you hadn't been willing to um, 
forge ahead in the face of of poverty and violence and and making a way out of no way absolutely in full honesty i mean that's that was the impetus behind this podcast because of the lost histories and stories and triumphs that you're speaking of because you're right we did lose an entire generation and i would dare say for queers of color in particular because we were already so quiet about our community that we don't even know how much we lost because we were kind of on, you know behind the eight ball just even acknowledging the contributions were even being made by queer men and women and you know during the harlem renaissance going all the way back to billy holiday i mean ma rainey like all those stories are are are, are lost mm-hmm. completely and only now are we starting to see our community or communities frankly because you know it's we're, we are intersectional beings and so you know to be black and brown queer people you know it, we need to acknowledge that we hold more than just one identity but only now are we starting to excavate all of those really important and really beautiful narratives when i look back at season three um one episode in particular was so cathartic for me and that was take me to church Mm, mm -hmm. you know in full disclosure i too fell in love with a boy in church and i've always wondered what would have become of us if we had enough courage to be us and as i'm watching this episode unfold between these two men mourning what never was I couldn't help but wonder if you were one of those characters in that moment. Yeah, um, that is that is a, a that's a really great observation. Um, I didn't have that personal experience, so I never fell in love with a boy in church, but I did have that experience in college. You know, having that unrequited love, that person who you really invested a lot of time and energy in. And it just, the timing was all wrong for a multitude of reasons. And so that was my reference point while writing, while writing that part of the story for the episode. Love that could not be fulfilled. Love that couldn't be fulfilled. And I think it's, it, it's, A, I, I, I appreciate that that resonated so deeply with you because i think it's funny it's it's something that i always say jokingly and it's always coming from anecdotal information and which is i think every every young queer or gay boy has that one unrequited love and more often than not that unrequited love tends to be a straight dude you know <laughs> tends to be some guy who just like was struggling to come out or you know i think we've all had that and right. Um, and again, I don't know that to actually be the truth, but. Oh, oh, um, trust. He's gay. He just didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. And there it is. I mean, we would like read the Bible together and my head would be lying on his bare chest. Now, you could say whatever you want about like, you know, platonic friendships and you know brotherhood and fellowship in the whole in the whole nine 
I don't know no straight dudes that's sitting there coloring, reading the Bible together with like shirts off and like. <laughs> Hello. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things that I really love about the series was how you honored those R&B classics of yesteryear throughout the entire journey. And I'm just curious as to whether or not there was a deeper connection for you in picking those songs. So let's start with the Stephanie Mills classic, Never Knew Love Like This Before, because when I heard it, I was like, oh snap, this was the cut. Barbecues in the back, <laughs> macaroni and cheese in the oven. Yes. You know, playing spades. Like, whoa, he did that. Why did you pick that song for that moment? Ooh, he said play spades. He just took me back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Can, can you play? I sure can. I grew up in the Bronx. When we were, when I was in high school, we used to play spades in the cafeteria for money. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm. Well, I'm looking forward to us connecting with two other people and having like a spades night listen, and working this out. Listen, I got you. Um, <laughs> but I was just collecting them books. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miss Stephanie, never knew love like this before. Where did that come from? Why that song? Well, that was a Ryan Murphy suggestion. And we had already been working on this story of of seeing a the unfortunate event that is losing a member of the community and specifically centering trans death on the show um and so when he came in he pitched the song all of us were like of course because similar to you it's like i mean i grew up hearing that song my parents have that on vinyl so it was like yeah okay makes sense absolutely awesome for all we know donny hathaway Mm. okay so that was season one and we knew that we wanted the audience to earn hearing Billy Porter sing. And we go like the ripple. You know, because everyone knows him from Kinky Boots on Broadway, and this is, you know, a Tony winning actor. And we just, we didn't want him to sing just for the sake of singing, like it had to be a special moment. I mentioned Donny Hathaway just in passing, but I was like, I don't know what the song would be. And it, you know, and he came back and he was like, what about For All We Know? And I was like, wait, really? And I hadn't even thought about it. I was like, oh. Stephen, there are so many lessons, beautiful lessons that you were sharing with us over these three seasons. And I'm just curious as to what was the one big lesson that you took away from this journey? That is a great question. You know, I think that one of the one of the lessons for sure that I've learned from working on this show is to stand unapologetically in my truth, to never dim my shine for anybody. 
I think for me, standing unapologetically in my truth means to allow Stephen to exist in all of his fullness, in all of his complexities, in all of his contradictions, because all of that is beautiful. You know, for those people who are listening, you know, I don't necessarily consider myself to be super religious. I definitely grew up in the church, but, you know, it's like, you always hear we are made in his image. And so uh, to me, it's like, I, I want to be able to honor all parts of myself. And I think especially for those of us who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community, I think we're so used to um, code switching and turning parts of ourselves off because we're afraid of, of that. We aren't going to be accepted. You know, we, we're, we, assume that there's going to be rejection and that people are not going to be um, okay with who we are in our fullness. And so what's so important to me is that every decision I make, every choice, every space that I find myself in, that I allow whatever version of me is up front and center to just be present. You know, like multiple truths can exist at one time. And so, you know, I can be funny and I can also be sad. And, you know, I can be uh, polished and I can also be really messy. You know, like all of those things are truths. And I just need to allow myself to be all of that. I need to honor that and not be afraid of other people's judgment of it. When you are your authentic self you feel empowered to be yourself. But once you start doing things that in some ways require the approval or acceptance of others, you do start making accommodations for that. And I bring that up because while it's wonderful that Steven is fully accepting of himself, I'm curious as to whether or not you felt compelled to write for a straight audience with Pose, because the goal, obviously, of a hit TV show is to have as many eyeballs as possible watching it. I mean, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I was hyper aware that that I wanted a straight audience or a cisgendered audience to come into the show and to be moved by it. You know, I think that for me, my work, I always wanted to live in the intersection of education and entertainment. The truth is that, and this question has come up for me quite a bit when it comes to the show, is who is the audience? Who is Pose for? Because I know our community is already engaged in the discourse and and hyper aware of it, Um, which obviously creates, it's a tricky balancing act for me on the page because I'm hyper aware that I don't want the audience who's already engaged in this conversation to feel like now, it's like I'm preaching to the choir you know, and so the the question always is um, balancing the narrative with the people who already are in the know with the folks who are going to come in and are going to be engaged in it for the first time. You know, Pose obviously was born out of selfishness, um, the selfishness being that I wanted to see my communities and the people who matter the most to me being centered positively. It came out of me creating a show that I myself would want to watch and that there was also this other selfless side of it, which is just that I know that the stakes are high 
and that there was a sense of urgency to center these communities because we're still in a place where, for example, trans people are still having to fight for their lives. And we're still in a, at a time where legislation is being passed and telling the trans community that they don't deserve to exist, that they don't deserve to occupy space. Um, and so for me, I knew that the show could also be a tool um, used for change. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because you certainly felt intentional in season three, more so to me than the first two seasons in talking about this intersection between gender identity, sexual orientation, and race. Um, you know, the episodes where you're discussing O.J. Simpson, for instance, and police and police brutality and the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to how much of what was written for season three was a byproduct of what the nation, if not the world, went through shortly after the death of George Floyd. Or was this always part of your plan? I'm so glad you're bringing this up and asking this is this is the absolute truth. We wrote the first three episodes of the season before uh, we went into lockdown because of COVID-19. So this predates March of 2020. And in fact, those scenes uh, where they're watching OJ on the run and they're having conversations around being black in America and police brutality. They think he might kill himself. Who is going to kill himself? Okay. You can't blame a black man for running from a broken system. Those scenes were actually shot March of 2020. So it predates George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Tony McDade. And so for us, you know, like I have goosebumps talking about it with you because the reality is like we had no idea that it was going to be so urgent and so necessary. Who knew that we would write that and then suddenly we would find ourselves in a place where as a people we actually were having a reckoning and having these really important conversations. Did you or your team feel compelled to reshoot anything in light of what happened in May of 2020? No, I, I mean, I think the only time where we very clearly and explicitly were responding to something that was happening as a current event um, was in the second season with uh, Candy's death, right? Where we were, we were breaking story and we were trying to figure out wh what exactly was going to happen in episode four. And then in a span of four days, three black trans women were murdered. And so we immediately pivoted and said, okay, we have to tell this story because obviously, you know, the stakes are really high and we can use our show as a way to educate the masses and engage in an important discourse. Our show is always better and our story is always stronger when, when we're just crafting honest narratives around mm -hmm. our characters as opposed to trying to point the finger at our audience. And so... Um, you know, similarly, I think our finale, in my mind, directly addresses what was happening over the past year with uh, COVID-19 and all of us dealing with this global pandemic, in spite of the fact that the episode centers the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and, you know, to me, that's a much subtler way of talking about these issues as opposed to us going back and trying to retrofit story. 
now that Pose is, is behind you, um, what's your next project? How are you going to entertain and inform us now, Mr. Steven? I am right now, I'm taking a little break. Um, Did you run that by the committee first or are you just doing that <laughs> unilaterally? Because I need more. I, I didn't. I don't recall telling you you could chill, but maybe someone else did on on staff. Oh, you didn't. You didn't get that memo. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did not. I did not that you were taking a break. How long of a break are you taking? Like a weekend or something longer? I haven't put a official. I haven't put a time stamp on it. Um, I want to take time right now, not just to, you know, recoup all of the energy that I've expended working on this past season. Um, and also luxuriating in all of the love that has been coming my way because of the last season. Um, but I also want to be really intentional about what the next story is. What I can say for sure, though, is that whatever that story is, it's always going to center LGBTQIA plus people, people of color, women. You know, like like those are identities that are really critically important to me and in this current television landscape it's really important that we are centering those voices i'm super excited to see what you do next um which brings us to our final question my friend just as we always ask the same question to start every conversation we always end the same way with the question and this particular question is really simple um what does living out loud as an openly gay person mean to you perhaps in 10 years? What does that look like? Wow. Well, I hope in 10 years, well, personally, in 10 years, I would love to be a parent. So, you know, I I would love to be dealing with all of the uh, complexities and excitement and challenges of of fatherhood. Um, Okay, child, just remember you asked for it. (laughs) <laughs> as a father i'm just letting you know i'm gonna be calling you <laughs> i'm gonna call you like elsie why did i say that why did i say it and i'm like i try to tell you i love it i'm like go spend time with your uncle elsie bye um but i i think that you know it's it's an interest that's an interesting question that you ask i think specifically because you added in 10 years and i feel like i'm already living my life out loud now you know it's like i mm. i think mm. about specifically um something that uh this is a story that ryan murphy shared with me when we first started working together on pose you know he talked about his experience as an openly gay man in 1997 like 96 97 98 when he began working on his first show popular you know, he has so many stories about how difficult it was. Like he would get these notes where they were just trying to not just dampen his spirit, but really change the tone and the tenor of the show that they bought, the show that they wanted him to create. And I think about how now, you know, 20 plus years later, I'm in a position where I get to reap the benefits of all of the battles that he had to deal with. You know, there was never pushback from FX. You know, you go back to the first season, second episode, and we have a scene where you have a trans woman, a black trans woman sitting with her black gay son talking about sex. It's like, in what world would that have been a possibility then? And it's a reality now. And it's, it's a very surreal experience when I sit back and think about 
the story that I just told, that I was given the keys to the castle and allowed to to just run free, unfettered to tell this narrative. Um, and so, you know, and I just, I'm living it. I guess that's that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm already living out loud. It's like as a, you know, queer Afro-Latin person who grew up in the Bronx in housing projects, I get to say that I'm a working writer, director, producer in Hollywood. You know, that I am the co-creator of a show that has won multiple accolades and has hopefully shown the world that my community has value, that my community and my people matter. It's incredible that I got to do that at, at this point, at this juncture in my life. I'm just, I'm so humbled and I'm so grateful. And I just need to spend some more time thinking about what, what does living out loud phase two look like for Stephen Canals. You have a lot of people holding their breaths, excited to hear what the answer to that question is. Stephen, thank you so, so much for your time, your wisdom, and especially for Pose, which, you know, admittedly, I was a little concerned about when I heard what it was about, because I was concerned that the execution would fall short. And uh, I can report for myself, at least, that you exceeded my expectations. Thank you for joining us on Life Out Loud. Thank you, LZ. Thank you again to Stephen Canals for spending time with us and for being our very first guest. I really love hearing about the background, you know, how the show was made, the decisions that were made, especially when it came to the music. We didn't get a chance to talk much about Whitney Houston, but here's a little secret. Not only is Whitney's music featured in the pilot, it's also featured in the series finale. Plays a big part in it. Hope you love it. I certainly did. And speaking of music, we know that Billy Porter sang his ass off during the series, but MJ Rodriguez also has a great voice. MJ, of course, plays the role of Blanca in the series, and we have an opportunity to talk to her as well about what that character means to her, what the show means to her, and what she has planned for the future, both her music as well as other acting roles that she's already got lined up. And she also opened up about her special relationship with her mother. And she was like, I just feel it. Something's coming right around the corner. She was right. She was right. So she uplifted me. She told me to just keep the hope alive, child. And I kept that hope alive. And it happened quicker than I ever expected. And that's what you're going to hear in the next episode of Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings. Thanks to senior producers Tony Morrison and Robert Cepeda. What's up, boys? Associate producers are David Toledo and Madeline Wood. The executive producers of Life Out Loud are Eric Johnson and Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Mark Anthony Harris Gardner, John Haworth, Kieran McGurl, Elena Genovese Picard, Joel Lyons, Jonathan Fagg, Joyita Bizras, and the Pride ABC and Own Television Stations Employee Resource Group. And a big shout out to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, Ali Yang, Hal Arenal-Thiel, Brian Choi, and Stacia Dushisku. I'm LZ Granison. Girl, wasn't that good? <laughs> <laughs>